with Simon Gallagher. Welcome to The Grid Podcast. This week we're going to explore hydrogen, a topic I've had lots of requests for. It is a very emotive subject. Views range from advocacy of hydrogen as a silver bullet that will instantly solve all our complex net zero transition issues to those who view it as not only a major distraction from the difficult decisions we need to make, but an ecosystem that could lock us into an expensive fossil fuel for a generation promoted by predominantly the oil and gas industry. Well, today we aim to take an impartial view. So to help with that, I have a guest, Jan Rosenau, who is a director of the European programs at the Regulatory Assistance Project, as well as an honorary research associate at the Energy Programme of Environmental Change Institute within the University of Oxford. Jan has a long and detailed history in environmental policy and is right at the cutting edge of energy and environmental policy. And he has those magic letters to prove it. PhD as well as MSc. Welcome, Jan. Anything you would like to add to my intro? Uh, hi, Simon, and thanks for having me uh, on your on your show. I think we have a lot to talk about. I mean, clearly, this is a topic um, that leads to a lot of discussion. I can see it every day on my LinkedIn or Twitter feed, but also beyond that um, at conferences and events. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. Brilliant. Well, it's absolutely great to have you on. So thanks for agreeing to it. So we'll just get right into it then. So I'm really keen to present an evidence-based view today and take out as much of the, the emotion and the vested interest as I can, which is why I've asked an eminent expert uh, such as you, Jan, who's got a broad view of policy, regulation and industry. So we'll start off with the lobbying then. I mean, do you see a lot of emotion and lobbying going on around hydrogen right now in the UK? There clearly is, and not, not just in the UK. Um, you, you can see that, that the, the topic of hydrogen has been promoted um, for quite a few years now by uh, different groups um, for different purposes. Uh, you, that includes, for example, parts of the, um, of the car industry. Um, that you, there was a narrative for quite a while that hydrogen cars would replace uh, the uh, current petrol and diesel cars on the road. Uh, but we now see that discussion has kind of moved on a bit because um, you know, electric vehicles um, have, have simply taken up uh, whilst we were still discussing the potential for hydrogen cars. But there are very few uh, cars that are being sold that use hydrogen. There are some, um, but most of the major car manufacturers have now switched um, their strategies pretty much to fully electric. Uh, vehicles, um, uh, at least, um, you know, sort of after 2030, some a bit earlier than that. Um, the other big area, of course, is heating and the gas grid. And that's, I think, where we still see a lot of discussion and many proposals being made, uh, sometimes uh, by those who have a vested interest, but not always. Um, and this discussion um, is, is ongoing um, and, and it's ongoing because governments are making you know, very uh, wide ranging decisions uh, on this in the coming years, um, allocating public funds, deciding what would happen with the, with the gas grid, uh, what kinds of technologies should get um, support, what kinds of regulation will be implemented. And that's why we see 
this flurry of activity that's that's ongoing. We also, of course, um, have different groups uh, in the UK Parliament uh, or party parliamentary groups that, that look at this topic, some of which are directly funded um, by, by companies that have an, a, a business interest in, in, in hydrogen. Uh, so the discussion is very much well alive, um, and I don't think it's going to end anytime soon. No, and I think, uh, yeah, I think that's a really good summary of really why it, it can be so emotive, because not only not only are people genuinely passionate about the, the transition we're going through, but there is a lot of big businesses involved with different viewpoints. So the all-party parliamentary group in Hydrogen is interested because the... Um, the sponsorship of that group is like a who's who of the of the oil and gas industry, which which I find interesting. So we'll, we'll get into the detail of the different use cases in a bit. But can can you just talk us through hydrogen in terms of, you know, for the, the non-experts out there? I mean, what is hydrogen? Why are we talking about it? And what are the proposed ways that it can fit into our energy system? Yeah, uh, I mean, hydrogen is very abundant in, in the universe. That's often highlighted by people who want to use hydrogen everywhere the the the, the, the main problem is that uh, it's not it's not easily available you know it's it's usually not um uh, available in isolation where you can just extract it and use it you have to separate the hydrogen um, and you can do that by you know using different processes uh, the one that is is uh, is used um, often is steam methane reforming, uh, for example, where you know we, that's called blue um, hydrogen. Um, if you also capture the carbon and then sequester it and, and store it, um, which essentially means you strip out the hydrogen from the natural gas and then you uh, take the carbon and you you sort of store that, uh, hopefully safely, so it doesn't leak. Uh, that that's sort of one way um, of of you could generate hydrogen. Uh, the other one is uh, what's called green hydrogen, where you use a process called electrolysis, uh, where you're essentially splitting water uh, into hydrogen and oxygen, and you're using the hydrogen um, you know, where where you need it. Um, what is very important, I think, for your listeners is to understand that uh, we already use a lot of hydrogen in the world, and it's currently highly carbon intensive. More than 90% of the world's hydrogen production um, is um, very carbon intensive hydrogen made primarily from uh, gas, but also coal, and it's called gray or black hydrogen. And less than 5% is um, so-called low carbon hydrogen, you know, that will be blue hydrogen. Um, which is, uh, as I said before, steam methane reforming from natural gas or fossil gas uh, and then capturing the carbon or green hydrogen using electrolysis. So it's a very small amount of hydrogen that we currently make that doesn't lead to significant um, emissions. Um, so that's that's sort of where we are. Um, and um, that's that that's already a significant chunk of emissions and if you want to move forward and make more hydrogen of course it's going to be important that that hydrogen is going to be produced in a clean way um, because making hydrogen from gas or coal and then using it for uh, as a fuel actually is more carbon intensive than using um, gas or coal in the first place absolutely and i think there's some really important points in there and that you know the first one for me and and I do get this question is hydrogen is not an energy source in itself. It's a vector to move energy. So we still need an energy source, be it wind energy through electrolysis or through the energy contained in, in natural gas or coal. So it's not 
some people think it's like a reservoir of, of stuff in the ground, like oil, but it's not. And then absolutely, I mean, I think it's 96% of the world's hydrogen currently comes from um, superheating steam. And if you superheat steam, it is actually more carbon intensive than just using the gas in the first place because you need energy to create the steam to split the hydrogen out of the gas. Can you just explain about hydrogen and how we transport it? So it doesn't tend to be transported in in tankers the way we transport crude oil or petrol, for example, but we transport it through pipelines. But there's there's problems with pipelines such as embrittlement and gas escape, which which I think is one of the big problems. Can you just talk us through that? Uh, well, you already mentioned a key uh, concern that people have raised, um, and that's because hydrogen is a much smaller molecule and is more prone to leakage um, than than gas, uh, fossil gas. And that means you need a different infrastructure. You can't just assume the old infrastructure will work just, just the same. And also the other point is embrittlement. Um, so if you have steel pipes, basically they, they may start to, to crack and um, that could, can lead to leakage. Uh, having said that, I mean, there, 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 there has been an upgrade program, especially in the UK, where um, essentially we have upgraded the pipes in the ground that in a way that many people will say um, makes them ready to um, transport hydrogen uh, without those issues. But of course, there's still the question, if we use it for heating, for example, in people's homes, is the pipework ready? Certainly in, in, in old homes, often the pipework is not ready and it needs upgrading as well. So it's not just the transmission gas grid and the distribution grid, it is also the pipework in people's homes um, that, that will need uh, upgrading. Uh, and of course that comes um, at a cost. I mean, I personally don't believe that cannot be solved. Uh, technically, I think this, this, this can probably be solved. The more important question uh, I think is to do with yeah, the wider implications of a hydrogen economy. Can we actually make enough hydrogen at a reasonable cost uh, to replace the gas that we currently use in different end users? And maybe we should talk about applications of hydrogen, where it's currently being used, where it's proposed to be used, and what are sensible applications and what are perhaps more risky applications. Definitely, we'll, we'll get on to that. I mean, one of the questions I have, and I've, I've never really got that good a quality answer to it, and I've asked various different people. I mean, the distribution networks have had a lot of their steel, or their old cast iron pipes replaced by polyethylene. So, you know, a lot of that has been done through the iron replacement program since the 80s actually but the national transmission system that is still predominantly steel pipe and it's, we're talking massive amounts of money to replace that with polyethylene pipe so i think that's for me that's the big stumbling block is the is the transmission network and how we would repurpose that for hydrogen have you any better information on that or any views yeah, I mean, Element Energy um, did a study uh, on this uh, a while back, looking at the cost of upgrading the grid. And <clears throat> from, from memory, they estimate that we need to invest um, £22 billion in the UK in making the grid ready. I, I can't remember whether that includes the distribution grid as well or just the transmission grid. Uh, but it's yeah, it's it's not an insignificant investment that needs to be undertaken. Of course, yeah, you always need to compare that to the alternatives because let's face it, I mean there is no free lunch. You know, if we're going to decarbonize, uh, there is an investment cost, um, and that's very significant. 
whether or not we go down the electrification route or whether or not we go down the hydrogen route or, or district heating or, or something else depending on uh, on the sector um, but yeah there is a there is a huge cost so i think we need to compare the options to be fair because all of them will have significant investment requirements even the people who think that pure electrification is the answer well if you translate the energy that is transmitted across the uk every day on the gas network for heating I mean, the electricity grid only transports less than a quarter of that. There's a massive issue to be addressed, no matter what we do here, that there is absolutely no silver bullet or no, or no easy options. If we just talk about the different colours of hydrogen quickly before we get into the use cases, just to confirm, grey is generally superheated from natural gas. We use steam. That is more energy intensive than just using the gas in the first place. Blue is the same, only we use carbon capture and storage to capture as much of the the carbon we can. Does that work at scale? Is is that technology ready? If we're talking about blue hydrogen, well, people have different views on this, but I like to take a look back and see what we've actually done with carbon and capture um, around the world, and which informs my view of how feasible it is um, going forward. So we you know, we have had this discussion before when it came to the uh, phase out of coal. You might remember. There was a discussion about the future of uh, coal generation and there was the proposal to do clean coal which essentially would entail fitting ccs um, to uh, coal power stations very little has happened there isn't a single ccs fitted coal power plant in the uk in fact coal is on its way out um, in 2012 coal generation contributed about 40 percent to the uk's electricity mix in 2022, um, it's probably going to be less than 2%. That's what it was last year. And by 2024, the last coal power station will be phased out entirely. And then you could say, well, maybe other countries have done that. But you find that there's only one commercially operating coal power station in the world that has CCS fitted, and that's in Canada. And indeed, the carbon that has been captured is used to extract oil from a mature oil field so it's it's yeah it's it's used for a purpose to extract more fossil fuels and it's it, you know the capture rates are, are are not very high so there isn't good evidence to say it suggests that ccs works at scale uh, is easily scalable um, is very efficient of course yeah best available technology and what might be possible suggests much higher capture rates um, and that's where a lot of the controversy has been. Um, you know, last year in the summer, um, a professor from Stanford, Mark Jacobson, and um, Robert Howarth from Cornell University published a paper that got a lot of media attention. Uh, they claimed that um, you know, using hydrogen uh, with CCS is actually worse than you know, just burning fossil fuels in the first place. And there was a lot of pushback. Uh, and the main counter argument that people make is that they say um, they assumed uh, too conservative uh, leakage rates, you know, they assume very high leakage rates upstream, but they also do not assume um, uh, realistic capture rates, what might be possible with, with current technology. And that's where yeah, the discussion um, has been. But I think it's fair to say we haven't seen a large scale demonstrator of um, you know, CCS used to make blue hydrogen with very high capture rates. Uh, we, we just haven't seen that yet until it's been proven and, and not just a one-off, but really at scale over, over some time. Um, I remain skeptical as to whether this can be done. Um, what I would also say, even if you get to 100% capture 
which is impossible, um, but you get 100% of the emissions captured um, at the stage of producing the hydrogen, you still have significant emissions further upstream. Uh, and that is uh, something that can be addressed, but it can um, probably not be resolved entirely. So there's, there's still a significant chunk of emissions left, especially because methane is, um, has a very high global warming potential. I think the other issue too is, you know, even if it's demonstrated at scale, at, at what cost will it come? I don't think that's well understood. That's not a very niche application where you happen to have geological formations that really suited. So I think there's a there's a cost issue as well. Okay, so that, that's blue hydrogen. Then we've got green, which is probably the simplest and easiest to understand. So green hydrogen is simply where we produce hydrogen using green energy sources, renewable energy sources such as wind or or solar things like that so now on to the main meat of it then is the the different use cases so first one is heating or residential housing stock could you just explain what what the proposals is how we heat our buildings and any research there is out there that says you know is this a good idea is it a bad idea what what are the positives and what are the drawbacks for for heating our our buildings so when it comes to decarbonizing heating you essentially have a limited number of options available. Um, w one option is to um, simply replace the gas that we currently use, which is you know, largely fossil gas, with some other gas that is low carbon or zero carbon. Uh, that, for example, could be biogas. Um, uh, you know, that could be methane from landfill sites. It could be hydrogen. Or you, you do something else, so you, you're using district heating potentially, yeah, that could be uh, an option in especially in urban areas and not so much in rural areas but in urban areas you could have district heating which has been you know widely deployed in scandinavia especially in denmark and sweden for example um and then of course you still need to supply the the, the, the heat in some way in the district heating network um so that that the question then again is what do you use are you using um, gas, um, decarbonized gases to do that, or some, some, are you burning sort of biomass, which actually is an important fuel in Scandinavian countries and is, is, is problematic for various reasons, including um, you know, carbon emissions, but also air quality and, and land use issues, etc. Or do you use um, uh, you know, electricity from renewables um, uh, to generate heat? Uh, and then the third option um, is to switch to um, to heat pumps um, or direct resistive heating. So basically using electricity uh, directly um, in 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 homes um, uh, to keep to keep warm. So those are the kind of three key options that are usually discussed. Uh, there are some other niche applications, um, but those are the, the key three ones that are that are being discussed in in in, yeah, in the expert um, community around around heating, uh, and um, yeah, people have different views on them. Uh, and you ask, what is the what is the research tell us um, about what might be the most feasible option? Uh, and I think it's it's important to say that yeah, because we have pretty different building stocks um, uh, and availability of resources in different countries, there's not going to be like a blueprint that will just be exactly the same for every single place. Um, but I think it's, it's also true um, that we know from the independent analysis, which I've looked at, and that includes analysis, for example, from the IPCC, uh, the report that just came out um, a few weeks ago, but also the International Energy Agency, uh, IRENA, which is the International Renewable Energy Agency, 
um, many, many others at the national level in the UK, for example, the Committee on Climate Change, all, all that analysis suggests that um, it's a lot more efficient to um, go down the path of electrification and heat pumps, whether or not coupled with district heating, you know, or not, uh, yeah, that's a lot more efficient uh, and has, has economic benefits compared to just replacing um, the gas in the pipes with low carbon gases. Having said that, you know, there might be applications um, for gas, um, uh, even in a fully decarbonized heating sector. Uh, but I think those will be niche applications. And maybe we can talk about you know, what those might be, um, if, if, if that's of interest um, to you and to your listeners. Um, but my, yeah, my view, um, based on reading the research, um, is that electrification is going to become the dominant um, sort of uh, vector for heat decarbonization coupled with um, a re reduction in demand through energy efficiency, fabric um, insulation, essentially, of buildings. Um, that's going to be the most cost-effective pathway, according to the research that we've seen. Um, and that's where policy should focus, at least right now, because that's what the best available evidence tells us. Of course, things may change. Um, but right now, the evidence points very clearly in, in, in the direction of electrification and energy efficiency. I think, um, I mean, you know, the upgrade of our housing stock in terms of insulation and energy efficiency, no matter what um, path we pursue, and there will be a blend of paths, that, that seems one of the most important things that we could be getting on with now. It, it does seem a current gap in the government's thinking that it just doesn't seem to form a big part of, of the strategy. I mean, is, is it because it's it's not seen as a big infrastructure thing? Is it politicians tend to shy away from it because it's, it's actually quite hard to do. You know, it's a massive mammoth undertaking. But do, do you see that as, as a gap in our energy policy around the fabric of our housing stock? Oh, massive gap. And um, actually looking uh, you know, further afield, you will find that other countries take quite a different view. Um, you know, we've, we've seen um, countries like France, um, Italy, Germany, but also now Poland, investing billions every year um, of you know, uh, public funds into energy efficiency and upgrading um, buildings. Uh, in the UK, unfortunately, um, we have ended up in a place where um, a lot of policymakers perceive energy efficiency as kind of too difficult, too complicated. Um, and that's 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 a real shame because, uh, it, you know, it, it, yes, it, it's not easy, right? Let's, let's face it, we're dealing with millions of individual buildings. They're all a bit different. But um, you know, we also have a sector um, that uh, installs new kitchens, bathrooms, does loft conversions and builds extensions. And you know, that's really not that much more complicated. It's just that there has been uh, enough demand for the sector to develop uh, to what it is today. At energy efficiency, we've seen a lot of stop-start policies. So there hasn't been that clarity um, as to where the market would go and um, there hasn't been enough investment in, in actually building the supply chain uh, to the extent that it's needed. Uh, so it's a huge gap. And in, in fact, the, um, you know, the, the reaction to the Russian um, invasion of Ukraine um, and the, the energy crisis um, that was published through the energy security strategy the UK government put out a few weeks back um, it has very little in it on energy demand. It's, it's almost entirely an energy supply strategy. Uh, and what we need, in my view and the view of many others, is now an energy demand strategy that really 
reduces our exposure by um, you know, improving efficiency of buildings, but also by switching away um, from burning um, fossil fuels um, to using electricity um, for, for, for heating. So that's completely absent and it, it's a huge gap. I've pointed this out um, for at least a decade now because that's, you know, we've seen a massive drop um, uh, in the installation rate after 2012 when the Green Deal was implemented um, and that completely failed. Um, I think there's no other way of describing it. Um, just a reminder, the, the government at the time thought we could do 14 million homes by 2020. Uh, we did about 14,000 um, homes by um, 2015 when the Green Deal was then cancelled after um, uh, you know, less than three years. Uh, so it's, it's, it really is something that needs to be addressed and the government um, should take a hard look at this, this opportunity because it, it also helps people with their energy costs, I mean, that, which is a huge topic in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, it's just such a such an obvious thing to do. I mean, you know, also it, it actually improves people's quality of lives. You know, people who are currently living in what could be drafty or cold homes. So, you know, it, it creates jobs. It, it re drastically reduces our energy demand, which will, of course, help with our security of supply and our costs and, and helps people lead warmer lives so yeah i think everyone's agreed that it's a it's a massive gap so so th that's heat what about transport then because i mean even toyota and that seem to be moving more towards electric uh, vehicles now but what about you know people tout buses and heavy goods vehicles as as prime for hydrogen what what's the the research say there in terms of decarbonization of those harder to abate areas such as shipping um hgvs things like that if I may just make one more remark um, on heat, uh, which I didn't make before. I mean, the, the reason why the research is pointing in the direction I, I, I said it was pointing to is, is primarily to do with the um, efficiency um, of the different options. So if, if you use green hydrogen, which clearly is the preferred option because it's, it can be 100% um, zero carbon, uh, blue never can by, by default, it will always have some residual emissions. If you use green hydrogen, you need about five times, maybe six times more electricity to generate the same amount of heat compared to using heat pumps, whether individual heat pumps or coupled with district heating grids. And, and, and that's a huge difference between the two options and it requires five to six times more uh, generating capacity. It requires uh, five to six times more investments um, on the generation side, um, and and even if you know there are issues with storing energy and you know how, how do you deal um, with the electricity grid uh, at the distribution level and, and the investment cost of that, you still see that overall you know the the economics of the hydrogen option are just more expensive, um, driven by those inefficiencies. Uh, and, and that actually feeds through to the transport sector. Again, when you compare an electric vehicle with a hydrogen vehicle, you need about three times um, uh, more uh, electricity uh, to, yeah, to, to basically get the same service uh, from the vehicle. And I think what, what we're seeing is that for you know, like maybe five years ago, there was still a discussion where would it be hydrogen cars or EVs? That has, I think, has now been decided in favor of EVs. It's very obvious from just looking at the market data. Michael Liebreich, uh, I think, sometimes has a nice graphic which he updates where you can see the sales figures 
for um, electric vehicles, which is basically an ex exponential curve. And then you see the sales figures for on the same scale for fuel cell vehicles, and it's you can't see it because it's it's so low. Um, so I think yeah, that's not going to change dramatically. Um, we we probably have yeah, that's been I think has been decided um, in favor of EVs. And we, we we then moved into the discussion. Well, what about sort of light duty vehicles? Like uh, you know, for example, um, uh, your local distribution centers, um, you know, the, the vans, the uh, Amazon delivery drivers drive, um, you know, small trucks in cities um, that make deliveries. Uh, what's that going to be? And I think, again, we're now seeing, well, actually, electrification is is also very feasible there if you have um, your know, proper charging infrastructure, depot charging overnight, for example, and things like that. Um, so the economics there are, are looking pretty, pretty good. And then once once you then the next question is well what about heavy duty and and long haul um, transportation um, and that's I think where the jury is still out to what extent hydrogen could play a role um, to what extent electrification will will be more dominant but I think what we're seeing is a shift and electrification is taking a, a bigger chunk um, of the transport sector um, to what extent um, uh, you know, that would be uh, complemented by hydrogen, I think is difficult to say at this point. Uh, and and that, yeah, there will clearly be a combination of, of different solutions. Um, but I think the jury is still out there and we need to um, be careful with making judgments um, early on because we have seen that um, quite quickly, um, you know, we might find that technology innovates and there, there are cost uh, reductions that we haven't anticipated. Um, and so I, I think we, 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 we're going to uh, have to wait and see. Clearly for shipping, uh, long distance shipping, um, you know, hydrogen could play a role. Um, aviation um, uh, potentially as well, um, although you know, there are different views on that uh, and whether that's going to be feasible. Um, but you know, it's difficult to conceive of an electric uh, plane that takes um, hundreds of people ac across the Atlantic. Um, that, that's that's going to be um, uh, technically um, uh, impossible to achieve, probably, um, and, and therefore we need so, so something else uh, that has a higher energy density. Uh, but whether or not that's going to be hydrogen, I think, uh, remains to be seen. Absolutely. I mean, one of my favorite stats with electric vehicles, especially lighter vehicles, is you know even if we produce hydrogen from wind energy, for example, and wind turbines, by the time we produce the hydrogen through electrolysis, compress it, transport it, burn it in the fuel cell, convert that to electrical energy in the, in the motors, we lose over 60% of that energy we had in the first place, which which goes to your point about the you know the, the, the chain-wide efficiency is just very um, low for electricity to hydrogen than it is just using the electricity in the first place. So is it the third big area then um, is industry and the sort of the, the really hard to abate areas where, you know, there are parts of industry where we use lots of natural gas to produce chemicals, very, very high heat application. So what, what's the view or the research in, in those areas? Is that, is that where you were alluding to earlier where, you know, there is specific use cases where, where hydrogen could play quite a major role? Well, I would say the first use case in industry is where we currently use um, hydrogen as a feedstock. You know, that's where most of the hydrogen is being used, things like fertilizer production. And um, currently, as we discussed before, most of that hydrogen is carbon intensive. Uh, so replacing that with uh, green hydrogen 
um, or blue if we can make sure it has very low emissions. It should be the first priority, and indeed is 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 kind of a no regret option, right? We 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 don't have um, many other alternatives um, to hydrogen in those applications. Um, it's used as a feedstock, not as a fuel, so you can't easily um, rep replace it with something else. Um, and that's where, um, you know, if you want to focus um, the initial batches of green hydrogen, uh, that's where you should be should be focusing first. But then, of course, there are other uh, very high temperature applications <clears throat> in industry, as you pointed out, where um, with electricity, um, you, you're just not going to get there. Um, again, I think, you know, there is there is an ongoing discussion to what extent can you electrify some of these processes uh, you could, also the technology of heat pumps is getting better and better and you can reach higher and higher temperatures um, so there are uh, parts of the industry sector that clearly um, will need to be electrified because that's that's already feasible today and will be cheaper but there will be parts um, where electrification is not feasible um, but again, there are no. I think there there are no hard numbers on it that we can um, rely on. I think it remains to be seen. But I, I think yeah, that's one of the applications um, of hydrogen um, where um, it makes a lot of sense. Um, focusing on the feedstock um, uh, uh, sort of area and 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 focusing on, on on other applications where you need very high temperatures. Um, I, I think the fourth application sector which we didn't discuss it is a power sector and 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 I, I, I mean I don't know whether that's that's kind of part of your sort of in, in industry sector um, uh, uh, characterization but I think the power sector is 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 I think probably um, one of the most interesting sectors because um, we we have to somehow find a way of having dispatchable, um, electricity generation that is also um, zero or very low carbon um, and yeah that's not possible with wind and solar alone there's not going to be enough um, sustainable biogas um, around that can can do that batteries can't really store enough electricity um, to cover you know several um, days or maybe even a couple of weeks uh, of, of sort of low outputs of renewable electricity. Um, so we need something else to fill those gaps. And um, I, I think hydrogen could potentially uh, play a role there. Um, again, there is no consensus on this. You know, but when, when, when you look at the literature, some people will say um, it's got to be hydrogen and some people will be more cautious on it. Um, but I can see the merits. Um, you know, you're storing um, energy uh, during periods of um, you perhaps <clears throat> overproduction of renewable electricity and then you're using it um, when you have gaps um, in, in generation. Um, so that's where hydrogen can play, play a, potentially a very important role. Um, the technology is still at the very beginning. We haven't seen you know, a power plant that runs on 100% hydrogen yet. What we do see is that there are now uh, gas turbines that can run on a blend um, and increasingly I think we're going to see uh, that the share of hydrogen in those blends will will approach um, a higher and higher share, um, and then hopefully eventually we can see um, gas turbines that run on 100% hydrogen. Um, so, so there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, uh, but I think in the power sector clearly that there is an important role potentially for hydrogen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean that that's the area that I personally get excited most about when it comes to hydrogen because you know we we do have an issue with intermittency and we do have an issue with you know demand not 
not meeting supply when it comes to renewable sources such as wind and solar. So if we can if we can find a way to shift that and dispatch it when we need to, I think that that really will be a big help and really will address a lot of our carbon emissions that currently come from so much gas we use on the on the electricity network. So yes, I think that was a very exciting area. Okay, well that's fantastic. So tying this all together, what you know, what is your view on what this all means for energy policy? going forward in, in Europe and the United Kingdom? So I think it's helpful to um, separate um, this issue a little bit on a time scale. Uh, you know, clearly, there are some things that need to be done now um, and we know um, make sense. Um, so, for example, you know, insulating buildings, reducing demand uh, needs to happen in any scenario, whether or not we use hydrogen or heat pumps or district heating or something else. Uh, and that needs to be prioritized right now. And um, we need to do a lot more of that. Um, we also know that um, even in scenarios that have a high share of hydrogen used in heating, electrification is still a very important um, vector. Um, and we, we have to do a lot more. So we need to scale up the deployment of heat pumps. We need to scale up the deployment of district heat um, in the UK and, in, in, and beyond in Europe as well. Um, and um, that needs to be done quickly. Um, if uh, in 10 years time, it turns out that the fundamental economics have changed for whatever reason, um, uh, then um, we, can, we, can, um, we can still you know, focus efforts elsewhere. Um, but hydrogen is not gonna be available in the next five to 10 years uh, at any scale that makes it feasible to be used um, in, in end use sectors such as heating, um, also personal uh, transport. You know, it's it's, it's going to be used first in areas where we know there's a use case that stacks up. Um, and until we have saturated the demand there, um, there's not going to be an awful lot of hydrogen that's, that's, that's left to be used in other sectors. Um, so I, I, I think separating it out into sort of what happens in the next five to 10 years and what happens maybe in sort of 10 to 20 years is, is helpful for policymakers. Uh, so policies need to be made for the next five to 10 years, not you know, anticipating what will happen in 20 years, because that's not going to be particularly helpful given the huge uncertainties around this. Almost sounds like the basis for a good quality energy strategy right there, rather than the, rather than the one we had, which was focused exclusively on more, more medium term and um, all about the supply side of things. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Any, If anyone's got any questions, I've got the contact details at the end. I'll pass on any comments or questions on to Jan. So thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. Pleasure. Well, thank you very much, Jan. I think that was a very useful summary for our listeners who don't live and breathe energy policy every day, but need to make decisions. So do need to know the details Thank you for listening, everybody. Please do subscribe on YouTube and wherever you get your podcast from. You can ask questions in the YouTube comments and we will reply or drop me a line at thegrid at eastmartnetworks.co.uk. That is thegrid at eastmartnetworks.co.uk. Thank you very much.